So it's, it's been a great privilege again to open, open this book, um, the Bible, of course, but particularly Ruth. Um, it, for some reason, has become very, very real, very personal to me. And I love the story and I love the larger implications of it. Um, if you haven't been here or haven't heard back through, this is the way the chapters broke down with, with what we were doing. Uh, Ruth 1 was redemption. The, whole, the theme of the whole book is redemption, both in the historical meaning here and in the larger sense of the gospel. So Ruth 1 was redemption orchestrated and unseen. Ruth 2 was redemption prepared and personified. Ruth 3 was redemption pursued and granted. And then we come to chapter 4, which is redemption completed and consummated. Ruth 1, chapter 1, was all about God's sovereignty, right? And holding to that no matter what your circumstances tell you. That's what Ruth 1 was, was in, in a sentence. Ruth 2 was about how that trust in that sovereign God and doing what you must can lead you to, to hope, which can only come when we, if you remember the key phrase, when we come under the wings of God's favor by faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 was about pursuing, and a better word might be demonstrating that hope that is in our lives for the sake of the gospel, both in us and through us. Ruth 4, the way we're approaching it, is all about the transaction. It's all about the exchange. The favor that is offered. The receiving of it recognized. The pursuit of the object of that favor. The hope that it brings. Now, all of these things are brought to fruition in the transaction. Boaz will finally claim and take for his own the one he has come to cherish. Ruth will finally experience the fullness of her faith and trust in the favor of another. Naomi will finally have her unwavering, or not happy, but unwavering trust in a sovereign God rewarded. And all of it in this chapter centers around the transaction. This tonight we're going to read through the whole chapter and then we're going to pray and then we're going to examine the transaction and its mechanics and its gospel implications for us. And we'll see how some of the aspects of this transaction of Boaz for Ruth point us clearly, I think, to the transaction of Christ for us. Let's begin in chapter 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said to him, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. God, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for this particular chapter and the things that it threw which you showed me some great and wonderful things about what you have done for me, for us, for those who would respond to your work in our hearts by repentance and faith. So, Lord, help me as I share these things tonight. Help me to speak clearly. But most importantly, Lord, let the gospel be properly proclaimed and your word be properly preached by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing we have, we're going to go back to chapter 1. The first thing we have is very simply the place of the transaction. That's in verses 1 and 2. He's at the city gate. He says to the guy, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And then he took ten men of the elders and said to the city, sit down here. The place is at the city gate. We're told in verse 1 that this is where he is. This was the place of business, the place of leadership and decisions. This is where the leading men of a village came to do business and make decisions, and Boaz wanted this transaction to be done right, to be done publicly, and most importantly, to be done bindingly. So he gathers ten men of the elders uh, or leaders of his town as well and sets them down. This is, means basically they were called to order. In Baptist life, they were called to order in, like in a business meeting, right? So they were called to order something official and important to somebody was about to be addressed. Boaz he wanted this thing to be on record, right? The public nature of Boaz dealings with Ruth, Ruth on behalf to me, is, is again, I, it just points me to the public spectacle of the cross of Christ. 
What he did was a matter of public record. Falsely tried, beaten, flogged to the point of, of bones and bones, some say, beaten, more stripped naked, crowned with skull-piercing thorns, mocked, spat upon, nailed to a cross, still naked, for all to watch as he died a death of the cruelest and most demanding Christ, the most demanding kind. Christ's death for you, for me, is indeed a matter of public record. Right? So that's what Boaz is doing here, and that's how it points us forward. So we have the place of the transaction, and we move quickly on from that to, and we're going to put two points together at a time. This is the process and the purpose of the transaction, okay? And it's in verses 3 to 11. Let's read those again. Verse 3. And as we do our points, there's a couple of places where the te- this te- section of text overlap a little bit. Hopefully you'll see why. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parson of, of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me. Skip down that I, and because he says, I come after you. And the guy says, I will redeem it. And look at verse 5. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the Boaz, or the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Now stop right there. Boaz is very careful to follow the the rules of order, if not the rules of law that's going on here. Certainly, respect and propriety. As he said, he wants this to be done right. Uh, He has demonstrated, I think, if you remember chapter 3 in that very personal exchange between him and Ruth, he's demonstrated that, that this is something he desires. He's attracted. He's interested. And he doesn't want anything to mess that up. Right? Make sense? All that is done here... In this scene by Boaz is done to ensure that his integrity is held intact, even if it means that another would redeem Ruth. His integrity is of the utmost importance. If you remember back to chapter 2, we took a lot of time digging into the character of this man and how God had shaped him for this moment. Again, he demonstrates that character. So I find it interesting, and I said, I wonder if, 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 that, if there's something he knows or his character, could this be why he separates the issues of the property and the person in the question of redemption? Boaz knows who the closer redeemer is. He's the one who pointed him out, though we're never giving a na- given a name. So Boaz knows that this man, he, prob- he knows who he is, and he knows he already has property and possibly a wife and children. This would have meant, had that redeemer taken the property being offered and the woman connected with it, that this new property and what he already had would have to be shared by his existing family with his new family. Does that make sense? It would affect his prior inheritance and what he had already built for his wife and children. We do not know how wealthy this man was. We do not know how extensive was his fortune. We do know that he didn't want it messed with. That's that's what I see here. So he declined the offer of the property when the necessity of marrying Ruth was revealed. Seems, Seems kind of cold, right? I almost want to know a little more about that guy, but we don't in the text. Now, the process of this ancient uh, custom of redemption became, or, or seems to be, it seems to be just very complicated when the mixing of inheritances enters the picture. If you've ever uh, gone through or known somebody who's gone through uh, you know, a divorce, when you get into the mixing and division of private, it's very, it can get very complicated, very hair. That's kind of 
loosely related to what's going on here. So, but here, some, an interesting thought occurred to me. If he's so concerned with it, why is he so concerned with it? No one's inheritance on earth, and certainly in this situation, is limitless. Right? No one's earthly resources and what you have, you have limited resources. Right? In, in, in your own hand. Now don't throw the, my God, the cattle of a thousand hills. We're not there yet. You have a limited resources. This guy had a limited amount of resources to share with his family. So though he may have wanted to be generous, he was taking concern for what he had. Listen. The process of your redemption in Christ, in the gospel, has been so streamlined, it has been streamlined, and your inheritance fully stopped. First, there is no closer redeemer than Christ for you. He is it. He is our brother, Hebrews tells us. He's been made like us in every way. He is your closest redeemer. He takes second string to no one. He alone is the one who can and will redeem you if you come to him in faith. Second, second, let this register. When you come into that and into his inheritance, there is no limit. Oh, come on. Think about that. When you step into the inheritance of the king, there is no limit. There is no limit. Part of the purpose of his plan of redemption for you, part of it is that you share in his inheritance. You share in his inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 14, I believe it is, tells us that we have an inheritance awaiting us in glory. Glory, that of Christ. The phrase, specific phrase in verse 3 is he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. And it's only had by Christ and through Christ and with Christ in heaven with him. And none of that inheritance, none of that inheritance is known apart from the gospel in the person and the process and the purpose of the redemption through Jesus Christ. None of it. Let me take a moment and remind you what that is. We're going to digress here for just a moment. When I'm talking about the gospel, this is my favorite way to explain it. And with little kids and all the way up, it doesn't matter. This is, I, I, this is where I go in my, in my mind. Four words. God, man, Christ, response. God is holy. He is just. He is right. He is perfect. Man is not. And because of that, there is an irreparable separation. Man cannot come to God. Man cannot be with God. Why? Because if imperfection touches perfection, it is no longer perfect. Make sense? If unholiness touches holiness, it is no longer holy. So the answer to the question of what can man do so that he can be with God is nothing. Nothing. So Christ came. So Christ came and did what man could not. He paid a debt and a penalty that you could not 
And he made the only way for sinful man to know holy God. Rather than in wrath and in judgment. Because we are all under the same holy, just, right wrath of God. We're all there. And we're all doomed. But Christ came and made the way for us to know him. Rather than in that way, in love and in mercy and in forgiveness. You have one part that you cannot do until he works in you to do it. And that is to respond. To respond to what Christ has done. And you do that through repenting of sin and trusting in Christ and his finished, finished, finished work on the cross. That, in my mind, is the gospel. The process, he paid for you. Publicly and completely through his death on the cross. The purpose, in this context, part of it, part of it, is so that you could share in his inheritance rather than be forever excluded from it. Remember Ruth, the Moabite, should have never gotten in. But grace trumps law. Grace trumps law. She got in, and by the grace of God, you can as well. So that's the process and the purpose of the transaction. And then we come to the person and the power of the transaction. We're going to overlap. Actually, I think we, I think we stopped in the right place last time. We pick it up at verse 9. Yeah, go to verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Chilion and Malon, and also... Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife and to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead might not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. We'll stop right there. So once everything here had been done in proper order, Boaz lays claim, right? He lays claim to his new property and to his new bride. Now it seems, I don't think it seems, it's clear that Boaz, and even calling this meeting to order, has taken a significant point of privilege. He's the one who calls the elders together. <clears throat> He insists that the closer redeemer sit down to do business with him. He takes the lead in the proceedings. I would submit to you that if Boaz, again, pointing back to how God had shaped him for this moment, if Boaz had not been known as a mighty man, a mighty man of wealth, King James, a worthy man in my ESV, that he might have been less capable of affecting such an auspicious transaction in the first place. You think the respect that Boaz stewarded, I was going to say commanded, but I think this is a better word. The respect that he stewarded from his fellow men came into play. Here's the point. The person doing the redeeming is important. Okay. The person doing the redeeming is important. Just mark that down for a minute. Now. We must point out here that Ruth, although the custom of redemption was inextricably tied up with property, it was there. We have to point out that Ruth is not being purchased as a slave here. 
she was connected to the property as the widow of the one with rights to it. Therefore, she carries rights to it. That make sense? So Boaz is not paying a slave price here. He's paying a bride price. And we kind of think, that sounds kind of funny. Well, if you think about it for a minute, some early European and even early American traditions, you've heard of a dowry? That's what that is. A dowry to go with the bride. It's a loose, loose connection to what that is. It's a sum of money and possessions that were provided by the bride's family uh, intended to contribute to the making of a home with her new husband. So this is, this is loosely tied to that. Why do I think that? This is, this is why I think that. Because we've already seen clearly that Boaz wasn't after the property. He wasn't after the parcel of land. He had plenty. A mighty man of wealth, he doesn't need more land. And nowhere are we told he was a savvy businessman. That's not what this was about. He was a well-known and respected businessman, but he wasn't, he wasn't devious or, or, or shrewd or anything like that. He was one, he was a boss that his servants wanted to work for. He was the boss you wanted to work for. He had absolutely no need for more wealth, for more property. He's after Ruth. Right? He's after Ruth. He now loves her. He desires her. He wants good for her. We know this last one, that he wants good for her, because if you'll remember, he maintained, carefully maintained, his and her integrity back in chapter 3, both in act and in reputation. And he's done that through all of these events. So Boaz now pays the whole price for the property, the whole package, in order to get what he has come to love. And that is Ruth. She is not a piece of property to be bought and sold. Though she is indeed bought with a price in this. She is a precious person who is precious in the eyes of her Redeemer. Worthy to be pursued. Listen. My friends. You were and are precious to Christ. Those of us who have come to faith in Christ, His elect, His church, we are not just property to Him. Though He did indeed buy you with a price, a precious price indeed. His shed blood. He paid the bride price sufficient for the sins of the entire world so He could, in a sense, get to those He loved, those who He's after, those who would come to faith in Him. You me, we are his bride. He is the person affecting redemption. We are the ones being offered redemption. The person doing the redeeming is important. The person being redeemed is important. He is the person affecting the redemption. And we are the object of the redemption. Now as to the power of the redemption. Mm. Mm. See, I, I know where we're going. I mentioned that had Boaz not been a worthy, wealthy man of, of respect, of influence, he might have had 
more difficulty enacting this transaction to secure Ruth's redemption into his own arms. Right? Very simple question for you. How much mightier, how much more worthy, how infinitely more wealthy and able is Christ? Did you not hear the question? How much mightier is Christ than Boaz? I think I probably put it in the question. The answer is infinitely. He is, he is much abler. I'm not sure that's the word. He is much abler to, to redeem you who would come to faith in him. So do not ever, ever, ever do not think you have gone too far or done too much or waited too long. Do not Doubt his ability to redeem you or anyone else. Indeed, the Bible does say, and we will all find ourselves somewhere in this list. Indeed, the Bible does say that liars and adulterers and fornicators and murderers and revelers, etc., 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 cannot, cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. By God's law, I'm out. I am excluded. What hope is there for me? None. But take heart. Because Ruth the Moabite got in. Ruth the Moabite got in. The law to her said never. But grace said come. To us the law says never. But grace says come. He is able to deliver thee. Woo! Man. That's good stuff. I'm sorry, it just is. It's not mine, it's God's. He wrote it. Now, the last one is the promise and the posterity, not prosperity. That's a whole other discussion. I probably shouldn't have even said that. The promise and posterity of the transaction. We find this in verses 11 to 22. We've already read them, and I'm going to go to a key, key moment in just a minute. But I want to focus for a minute in this, in this blessing that's spoken over them. Look at verse 11. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, you look through commentaries and different preachers, there's multiple ways to look at this blessing that's spoken over Boaz and Ruth here. But it is, in fact, a common blessing at this time in Israel. May you be like Rachel and Leah, speaking of the fruitfulness of the womb. These were, Rachel and Leah, if you'll remember, these were wives of Jacob. They were, in a sense, the mothers of the nation of Israel. But one easily could surmise a deeper meaning that some who prayed this prayer here, they recognize a deep affection developing between Boaz and Ruth. Two people of demonstrated faith and integrity, again. And they recognize that they would obviously be used by God in a, in a significant way. Here's, here's how Ruth is being used. Because Ruth was like Rachel in that she is the treasured wife. He's gone to great lengths to pursue her. 
And he obviously loves her deeply. But she's also like Leah. She was like Leah because her womb, Ruth's womb, propagates ultimately the line of Christ. That's incredible. You think about it. She is both and. Because if you remember, Jacob had no love for Leah. He loved Rachel. But it was through Leah that the line of Christ came. Jacob had no affections for Leah, but God blessed her by giving her Judah, whose name means praise the Lord. There's yet another more profound way I like to see it. We've, we've seen and said over and over that the whole story of Ruth is a precursor to the gospel cloaked in a romance. Right? A precursor to the gospel cloaked in a romance. And everything in it, as such, looks forward to the fulfillment of the word and acts of redemption in Christ. Here... From this point in history, we're pointed forward by looking back. Remember and take note and remember from earlier in the book where Boaz and his clan, his family, and now Ruth the Moabite are from. They're from Bethlehem. I hope you see that instantly, the connection. They're from Bethlehem. The birthplace of Jesus. So in speaking this customary blessing over this new couple and their offspring, those praying spoke far more prophetically than they probably, maybe certainly realized. We'll see why in a moment. There's another promise for us in this last passage, though. And it's spoken to Naomi. Naomi, perhaps, had endured the worst of this whole story. She had had to be centrally and, and painfully part of the tragic setup to this, this wonderful moment. She, remember chapter one, she had lost, she lost everything. Or so it seemed. Remember chapter one. Remember Naomi's God did this to me attitude. Even though it was in bitterness, she proclaimed the sovereignty of God. She clung to it. Even though she wasn't happy about it, she held on to it. Now, the last few verses of this chapter, sometime after the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, Naomi's holding in her hands... An overwhelming little blessing. Made all the more sweet by the bitter road that led to this moment. She cradles a new grandson. Now before we point to that specific phrase, I, I, I want to... That I want you to take home. Skip down to verse 18 to 22. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. 
Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. Here we see the genealogy of Boaz. Now continued with Ruth, down through Boaz's great-grandson. Who was it? It was David. That, that would be the shepherd boy who would slay a giant, David. That would be the writer of many of the Psalms, David. That would be the one who would reign as king of Israel, David. The one who would speak as a prophet, David. And the one who would be forever counted as an ancestor of Christ. I said in the beginning of this journey that, that Ruth is one of those mountaintops in the Old Testament history. We have a clear line of sight of the gospel. I hope that after all the effort to climb that summit of the story of, of hardship, of suffering, of sovereignty, of redemption, and even romance that you can see from here the cross of our Lord Jesus. And how wonderful of you it is indeed. Now go with me back to this phrase I want you to see. It's in verse uh, 15. It's spoken to Naomi about her new grandson. Everyone knows that this redemption has meant much to Naomi as well. Hers was the loss of grief out of which this new joy was eventually birthed. Here... Spoken to her is something that I think our Lord wants to whisper to you tonight. And I don't want you to miss it. For those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, no matter the road you have walked up to this point, this will, hopefully, by His grace, breathe fresh hope, fresh joy into your spirit. I hope you sense peace and wonder again at what He has done for you, in you, and through you. For those of you here who, for whatever reason, have not yet, as this that key phrase from chapter 2 tells us, have not yet sought refuge under the shelter of the wings of God by faith in Jesus Christ alone, I hope this makes you yearn for something that you know that you are missing. This is what Christ wants to be for you. This is how he wants to be known by you. It's found in verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life. He shall shall be to you a restorer of life. Let that sink in for a moment. Think about from whence he has saved us and what our destiny was before Christ. Think on your own story, the hard road for some of us that have led to this night, and let that settle, settle deep. In your soul, in your spirit. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Has he been? Has he been 
for you. Sovereign God, thank you for that phrase. Thank you, Jesus, for that phrase. For the promises that it holds. For the truth that it contains. For the hope that it gives. For the peace that it offers. That through our Savior, that through you, Jesus, what you have done for us and finished and completed and won at the cross and at the empty tomb. That you, you can and want to. You will be to us who will seek you in faith and repentance. You will be to us a restorer of life. Father, you know every heart that is here, and there's not one here by accident. And I believe that because, much like Naomi, I claim to your sovereignty, and I believe you are sovereign over every detail, every event. So there's not a person here by accident. So Lord, settle that into the hearts. We all need it. But some, Lord, need that phrase very, very particularly tonight. So for whatever you have spoken to us individually and for what you have said to us again collectively and most importantly for what you have done for us again, we cannot say it enough. Thank you for cross, Lord Jesus. So as we sing, as we worship a little bit together one more time, as we respond, those that may need to come forward to the altar and just Pray or pray where they are. We give you we give you thanks and we give you praise. So for our good and for your glory, you work now in Jesus' name. Amen.